The best part of doing a podcast is talking through things with y'all, including my own mental health issues, and then monetizing it, because this is America, baby, and if it's not making you money, it ain't worth doing. Rise and grind, y'all. Get your hustle on. Christ, what a country. Welcome to Red Leg Revolution, a show about community. I'm CPTSD Dubs, and today we're going to talk a bit about mental health. In future episodes, we're going to delve a lot deeper into these subjects as they are really important topics that deserve a whole series of shows dedicated to. When we do these shows, I want to bring on a series of different guests, from professionals in the field to patients, so we can see the whole picture. But today, in keeping with the spirit of the first season, I'm going to talk a bit about my own path to peace, which I'm still walking, as well as the patriarchy baked into society when it comes to men's mental health. Finally, we're going to talk about how our own mental health is both caused by factors before us and how we choose to deal with those factors will affect those after us. Yeah, today will be the first time we talk about generational trauma, but it's a topic we're going to revisit over and over. Also, just to get it out there, I'm going to be making jokes in this show at my own expense. This is a reminder that I cope with my own diagnosed mental health issues, and thus I'm not making light of my fellow neurodivergents. Neurodivergent, that's a term that's gained a lot of traction in the past decade. On their diversity page, Boston University defines it as, quote, sometimes abbreviated as ND, meaning having a brain that functions in ways that diverge significantly from the dominant societal standards of normal. A person whose neurocognitive functions diverges from dominant societal norms in multiple ways. For instance, a person who is autistic, has dyslexia, and has epilepsy, can be described as multiply neurodivergent, end quote. Neurodivergent means we think different. Issues like autism, ADD, or epilepsy change the basic routing of the brain. I suspect that these traits are evolutionary in nature and are only considered differing from the norm due to, well, we live in a society. But naturally speaking, we exist for a reason. I'm neurodivergent. I've been diagnosed with ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder, Type 1 Bipolar Disorder, Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, and Generalized Anxiety Disorder. I've known since I was a kid that there was something different in the way my mind worked, and it helped me that my mom was well-educated and was able to explain to me what things like mental illness and mental health were. Although I had the knowledge and the language to express it, I didn't understand it, Why did I go through predictable cycles of extreme elation and darkest depressions? Why did I feel like something bad was always going to happen? Why couldn't I sit still? Why did I want to die? My mom explained the accepted theory in the late 90s. My brain either produced, my brain either didn't produce or produced too much of a particular chemical, and that was why we all had issues. This is partly true. Yeah, some mental issues are biochemical in nature, but we've learned so much in the past 30 years about trauma, about brain science, and about how they interaction that we, we now know that not all mental health issues are because of chemical imbalances. We need to consider the effects of, well, everything. What privileges do we have that might be bulwarks against emotional deterioration? Things like access to security, your parents' time, and access to services are things that protect our mental health. For example, as I've said before, I'm a white cis male. I'm oozing privilege and I'm well aware of it. 
And the fact that I was raised by well-read people who were able to educate me on my own mental health was another privilege that not everybody has. But at the same time, I was never able to see a therapist because we couldn't afford it. I can, when I was a kid, I constantly worried about the fact we were dirt poor despite being a child. Hell, I was smart enough to realize how poor we were when I was about five years old. There was dodging bill collectors on the phone, making up elaborate lies as to why my parents couldn't come. And back then, bill collectors could talk a lot of shit legally. So, kind of explains why I'm scared of phones nowadays. There were the times that the furnace got shut off and we all huddled in the kitchen to stay warm during the depths of winter. And there were all the times I was teased at the, the private school I attended through scholarship for my hand-me-down clothes. I also know that a lot of my issues with my own trauma come from my parents working all the time and being so beat down by jobs that they weren't always emotionally present. Yeah, there's a lot of trauma rooted in my childhood. And so much of it, in retrospect, were things that society foisted upon us. And that's, it is what it is. But I have a responsibility to address that. So let's take a quick break so I can monetize my healing. And when we get back, I'm going to tell y'all about my walk down the road searching for peace. The first, here's some ads. Hey, capitalism sucks, but Revolution Records, Kansas City's old school record and bookstore, is part of my community. When I'm in Kansas City and need a book or a copy of a local band's album, I go to Revolution Records. Revolution has a great selection of posters, books, records, tapes, and zines. Plus, they repair music and sound gear. That's pretty dope. Most importantly, Revolution Records is part of the community beyond being a small business. The staff does a great job maintaining an inclusive, accepting, and respectful atmosphere, and they also are active in making Kansas City a better place. Community fundraisers, workshops, events, and meetings all have taken place at Revolution Records, and that's just the stuff I was involved in. So the next time you need a new record to spin or your speaker breaks, go check out Revolution Records, located 1830 Locust Street, Kansas City, Missouri, or at revolutionrecordskc.com. Deep in the swamps of Florida. Honey, is that a new plant? He dwells, waiting where did those seeds come from, honey? Silently. Oh my God, what is that thing? Sending seeds and stickers across the country. Ah! And spreading solidarity. Have you lost your mind, honey? We can't move to a sustainable commune in upstate New York. What's wrong with you lately? There's no stopping him. The Mighty Skunk Ape is on Facebook, and he's on a mission. Anarchy! No! Coming to a post office box near you, the Skunk Ape Liberation Union. We're back. I suspected I was bipolar since I was about 13. Like I said, my mom recognized the signs in both my father as well as myself and warned me of what to expect. I didn't think too much of it through my teens since at the time my, bu uh, my bipolar was bipolar 2, which meant it manifested 
and extremely happy, full of energy, and my libido was insane. The depression was also more low-key, and while it still drove me to attempt suicide a few times, it, was as over, it wasn't as overbearing as it would become. Then my first kid was born. Now this isn't to say it was because of my son. Ollie, if you're listening to this, I love you very much, and none of what I'm about to talk about is your fault. If you ever do happen to hear this episode, tell me you did so we can talk about it further. Anyway, when my son was born, I was working at a job I hated. I was also dealing with my ex-wife's extreme postpartum depression. What that meant was that I spent my entire life working, taking care of the house, and keeping my son alive. You'll notice I didn't say sleep anywhere in there because that's because I wasn't sleeping but maybe an hour, hour and a half a day. After six months of this, I finally lost my shit. The lack of sleep literally drove me to hallucinations. So I remember sitting at a park in Johnson County watching the traffic drive by on Antioch Road and wondering how traumatic it would be for a driver if I ran out in front of the oncoming car. I had already decided I was ready to die, and this, the impact of my method on an unsuspecting motorist, was the last problem to figure out. In my family, we have a non-suicide pact. I think most families want to think that they have this deal, but it's unspoken and thus nullified. My family spoke of it often since we all dealt with the same demons. Remembering that pact, I called my mom. My mom and my little brother saved my life that day by talking me through things, and more importantly, pressuring me to get help. Less than a week later, I was checking in at Two Rivers Mental Hospital. Side note, I have a lot to say about mental hospitals since between my ex-wife and my one visit, I spent an inordinate amount of time in them either as a patient or a visitor, and there's a lot to say there. But that's going to have to be an entire other episode. The one thing I can say for Two Rivers that it was a positive thing, and they were able to expedite my medication under controlled and observed circumstances, and that probably saved my life. When I got out, I still wanted to die, but I also realized that everyone was counting on me, so death wasn't exactly an option. But by the time my ex-wife left me in early 2013, I was ready to die again. Instead of going into the story, I wrote a spoken word piece four years ago about it. Hell, about this whole subject. So, I'm going to drop it here. Well, the part that pertains to that moment. And then, for the outro, I'm going to drop the whole thing. So, check out five years ago. Five years ago, yesterday, the worst day of my life. The day I woke up, my whole life was shattered. My wife's gone with the kids. My pride, joy, and reason for living. My car gone. My bank account drained. My world, my galaxy, my known universe destroyed. If you want to hear the story of how that all played out, spoilers, I'm still here, then listen to the full piece at the end of the episode. That was my last serious suicide attempt. That was the last time I had a plan, and a big shout-out to my homie Barrett for saving my ass. I've been suicidal since then, but that was the last time I've considered seriously moving through with it. When I wrote this script about a month ago, it'd been nine years to the day. The summer of 2013, I began to seriously look into Buddhist philosophy. I was grasping at straws, anything that could help me find a reason to live, 
to continue to go on under such pain, and I was drawn to the idea of gratitude and presence. As soon as I was working a job with insurance, I began to see a shrink. The first one wasn't bad, but also wasn't anyone to brag about, but my second and third psychiatrists were. Dr. Worcester, despite being a conservative, was a great clinician and an even better therapist, but Dr. John LeCoyer was amazing at helping me figure out my shit. Dr. LeCoyer guided me through the worst of my divorce, taught me some great coping skills, and every appointment was more of a therapy session than a med check. And since we were both Buddhists, he integrated Buddhist teachings into my therapy. When I quit working as a school custodian and became a carpenter, Dr. LeCoyer didn't accept my insurance, so I spent the next few years doing unguided self-work. I spent that time self-reflecting. I spent it figuring out who I am, what I want out of life, and what I had inside me that was holding me back. Obviously, I didn't figure it all out, but it was enough maintenance to keep me sane. <coughs> I began to really understand how trauma affects our genetic code, <coughs> if not how it affects the body. I slowly realized that if I didn't fix myself, I would damn my kids to the same hell I was going through. And I loved them too much for that, so I kept, I kept on keeping on. I wrote this three days after my last nine years to the day to my last suicide attempt. I, what I'm about to read was a social media post I posted on Facebook regarding all that. A year ago tomorrow, it'll have been nine years since my last serious suicide attempt. I was driving to the store listening to my favorite one of my own pieces of music and it dawned on me, I created this. I was jamming along, dancing in my car, grooving until that thought hit me. I began to cry. I cried tears of gratitude as I thought of all the things I've created in the past decade. I cried tears of joy as I recollected the places, people, and adventures I've had since February 7, 2013. I embraced the pain that came with my divorce, the lessons I've learned from people I didn't even know back then, and the fact that I'm still here. I'm still here. And that's because of my community. It was my little sister, living hundreds of miles away at the time, calling my friends to make sure someone came to check on me. It was my friends following through. It was the homies who sat with me, listened to me, distracted me, and helped me cope. And since that day, it's y'all that keep me alive. I have my sense of purpose, but y'all make it worth it. The support, the kind words, the presence in my life, I wake up every day not wanting to let myself down because if I do, I let y'all down. I have a lot to work on. I still live with a pervasive sense of being, quote, in the gray, end quote, as my mom calls it. That feeling that I don't want to die, but if I did, meh. Therapy is helping. Meditation is helping. But it's still there. I'm thankful to have a great therapist who understands that, yet provides me with enough security that I could go to her if I was truly suicidal. But I'm not. I've developed a lot of good coping strategies since then. When I have a self-harming thought, I can shut it down with gratitude. I'm still struggling with my notions of self-worth, but I'm slowly convincing myself that I'm pretty awesome and I'm doing great things on this planet. If I had killed myself in 2013, I wouldn't have ever seen the Black Hills. I wouldn't have seen Yellowstone, grizzly bears, or the full moon rising over the Oglala grasslands. I wouldn't have learned how to make baller pizza or mold wine, 
Hell, I would have died without ever shooting a gun, let alone be part of an uprising during an environmental epoch. I wouldn't have met my last partner. I wouldn't have met about 75% of y'all, and I would have been on, like, maybe two government watch lists instead of however many I'm on now. I, would have, I wouldn't have became a respected shitposter, and my podcast would have had two listeners. I wouldn't have won an EPA award or organized a protest against Confederate sympathizers or... I could go on all day. I'm glad I'm still here. And I'm glad my tears today were of gratitude and joy. I love you all. Thanks for being part of my life. And that was... That was the post, right? So... Yeah... Let's go ahead and talk about men's mental health for a minute. And let me be clear, I realize and acknowledge that mental health for everybody is completely fucked in this country, but due to patriarchy, men are screwed in unique ways. From the always commendable bell hooks, quote, The first act of violence the patriarchy demands of males is not violence toward women. Instead, patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation, they kill off the emotional parts of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault his self-esteem. End quote. I've seen it firsthand, and judging by my analytics, so have about 45% of you. The culture is changing, and I'm extremely grateful for that. But when I grew up, men didn't show emotions. Well, except pride, ambition, and anger. And we weren't taught how to do so in productive ways. My mother tried numerous times to teach me to write it out, or, more often, punch a pillow. Even in the seemingly innocuous way, my mother was teaching me that hitting was a viable way to express anger. That's not throwing any shade on my mom, since she taught me more than most people's parents did, and she's also been indoctrinated in the patriarchy in insidious ways. Even if I had tried to express it healthily, my peers would have used that as ammo to emasculate, degrade, and humiliate me until I reverted to the acceptable gender norms of the late 1990s. I honestly didn't know until my mid-30s what many emotions felt like. I'd gotten so good at suppressing them, and when I felt a form feeling, I didn't analyze it and instead just buried it down. Emotions are a range, a spectrum, if you will. All anger isn't rage, well, it shouldn't be, and all happiness isn't joy. For example, amusement is a form of happiness, but amusement is an elation, nor is it necessarily joyous, enthralling, ecstatic, secure, or content, all things that can be forms of happiness. Men are not taught to feel the whole range of emotions, if we're taught to feel them at all. Due to this, we spend our adult lives with a vague sense that our feelings are false. Why wouldn't they be, if it's not a familiar one you understand? Although we're doing better as a society, we're still far from where we need to be. When male celebrities open up about their own mental health struggles, they're turned into jokes, memes. Their real suffering is downplayed, and that's a result of what we just talked about. There's still a stigma in society of men processing their emotions through crying. There's still the whole man-up train of thought that pervades our social structures. The notion of toxic masculinity is gaining ground, and part of that, a large part, is due to what Bell Hooks said. If you're friends with me on social media, you know I post frequently about my own mental health journey. I try to be frank, honest, and open, and to that extent, I tell my friends when I cry. 
Part of that is due to my natural reliance on my support structure to offer me empathy and encouragement, but the bigger part is to help normalize the fact that individual men need to get their shit together. In order to do exactly that, men as a whole need to get their shit together. And I'm thankful it seems like we're slowly heading that way. Now let's talk a bit about generational trauma. <coughs> Any conversation by a white dude regarding this should be prefaced with the fact that our black and native comrades have suffered institutionalized generational trauma, and I, as a white dude, benefit from that. I'm not going to go too deep on that since I don't have a black or native co-host for this episode, but we will eventually. Oh yeah, we will. <coughs> Damn frog in my throat. And somebody put tears on my face. Anyway, some people think generational trauma is new-agey, hippie bunch of bullshit, but science shows this isn't true. You see, when we're in traumatic situations, or we hold on trauma in our bodies so our bodies feel like they're in ongoing trauma, it literally, literally changes the genetic makeup of our DNA. I could go into the science, but I'm already at like 3,000 words, so I'll leave that for a future episode. But for now, let's let's go ahead and accept that notion as fact. Our DNA changes, degrades, and otherwise alters under extreme duress, which in turn is passed down to the next generation via these warped genetic codes. I have to wonder how much of the mental illness in our country isn't chemical per se in nature, but bio biochemical in the form of altered DNA. My ancestors come from all over Europe, from the Irish who were colonized by the British, happy St. Pat's, yeah, let's, let's talk about, I should be doing a St. Patrick's Day episode right now and talking about cultures being stereotyped and the genocide and colonialism of the British Empire toward my culture, but today we're talking mental health. So, yeah, from the Irish who were colonized by the British to the Czech who were fighting everyone in Central Europe for defense, there's some historical baggage I'm carrying from my ancestors. And then there was the trauma of my maternal line being subjected to the patriarchy. There was the extended trauma of poverty, which runs its course to this day. There were the cycles of domestic abuse, sexual abuse, and psychological abuse that everyone in the pages of history books endure. It's all flowing through me. Indeed, it is part of me. The trauma I went through as a child was because of my parents' trauma, and, the, and their parents before that, and their parents before that, all the way back to time immemorial. How do we stop it? This is the big one. My mom used to tell me when we were talking about mental health that I would continue to hurt those I love unless I broke the chain. A chain only goes on as long as the links are interconnected and all it takes is one link to break away. I'm working on breaking away. And you should be too. You are worth having a fulfilling and content life. And if you're struggling with your own mental health, I'm proud of you for sticking with us. It does get better, but you got to take charge. You got to be willing to sit in the shadow and suffer because that's, that's how we heal. We have to let this stuff out of our bodies. We have to accept that nothing is constant and that we are stronger than the trauma that made us. It's something I struggle with every day. But I have faith that in the end, damn strong faith, 
that in the end, I am stronger than the bad things that I've had to endure. And I have that same faith, not only for myself, but for you as well. So yeah, I think that's what I got. And uh, I'm going to read these last paragraphs and then probably go cry. So thanks for listening. I assume you all be sending me a bill, and don't worry, my insurance will cover it. Ha, joke's on you, I ain't got insurance, I'm an American. This is Red Leg Revolution. You can follow us on the social medias at Red Leg Revolution on almost everything except Twitter, which is Red Leg Pod. Like, share, and subscribe to the show, and do my mental health a solid and recommend it to your friends. After all, our only hope is each other. Peace. Fuck, I don't know, generational trauma or some shit? Ruining my DNA, goddammit.
wedding is a joyous occasion, it's yet. We ignore events that make us, shape us, form us, define us into the people who we are today. We let dates slip by unnoticed. Calendar pages fall like so many leaves when we survive trauma, heartbreak, destruction, disease, death, death. You've made it this many days without dying. Have you ever thought, wow, that's really an accomplishment? Or today is the first day of the rest of my life. This can only end with one of us dead, and so far I have never died, not for lack of trying. Five years ago, I tried to take my own life. Things are different now. Things are different now. Things are the same, but things are different now. Coping. I've learned a few skills, not nearly enough, not nearly enough, but I've learned the one who tells me it would be better if I were to fade into the night is a dirty liar, a dirty liar. Even if that one is me, I can't trust myself sometimes. I wish I could, I wish I could. Five years ago, five years ago, and every day since, 